for something like this, something, something so incredibly evil to happen was um, just unthinkable. For me, personally, to be able to, to turn this around and to help other people be able to come to terms and, and hopefully start the healing process was incredibly helpful for me to process through my own grief. And I've cried with these folks and I've laughed with these folks and created friendships that I'll have for the rest of my life. I'm Damien Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking to Lauren Villagran, who generally covers border issues for the El Paso Times. But she recently crossed a different border, the U.S.-Canadian border, to take on an issue that is near and dear to the hearts of El Pasoans and Fronterizos. Lauren traveled to Portapec, Nova Scotia, where one night in April 2020, in the time it took for the Bay of Fundy's high tide to drain into the Atlantic and swell back up again to the wooded coast, as Lauren wrote, a deranged man gunned down 22 people in their homes and on the street in Portapec and the idyllic communities that line the West Shore. As Lauren notes, there were echoes of El Paso's August 3rd, 2019 mass shooting tragedy nine months earlier. The same number of initial victims, a shooter with easy access in the U.S. to assault-style firearms, a hashtag ending in strong. But Canada's response was much different from those in Texas and across the United States. Lauren was kind enough to join us this week to discuss her trip and her reporting. First, Lauren, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Damien, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's always fun. Lauren, can we start out with you telling me a little bit about how this story came about? Yeah, sure. So my former editor, Codel Rodriguez, who is now with the Houston Chronicle, um, I had been thinking through ways that we could push the story forward of how a community, how our community, you know, handles the aftermath of a mass shooting like the one we saw at Walmart in on August 3rd, 2019. And he discovered that eight months after our mass shooting, a small community in Nova Scotia in Canada experienced a terrible mass shooting that took a similar number of lives. And the reaction in Canada and in the province of Nova Scotia was 180 degrees what we've seen in Texas and the U.S. I was about to say, um, if it was your pitch, it seems like send me to Canada with a photographer might be a heavy lift. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it, it was. It, it's funny that you say that. Of course, it was a really difficult story to report because we're, you know, approaching people who were very close to um, a, a terrible tragedy. At the same time, oh my goodness, Nova Scotia is 
gorgeous. Um, and uh, if I dare say, I think it's like the New Mexico of Canada. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to some of uh, the folks that we met there and they kept ribbing Western Canadians, you know, and I said, well, well we, we are, don't do that. <laughs> right, well, well, they, they, they were, they were ribbing Western Canadians. And I said, well, what do you mean by Western Canadians? And they said, well, you know, people from Alberta. And I said, well, what are the people from Alberta like? And they said, well, you know, it's, it's oil and gas country. They drive big pickup trucks, very materialistic. And I said, oh, wait, is Alberta kind of like the Texas of Canada? <laughs> And they said, they said, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Nova Scotia is um, very sparsely populated. It's very wild, very beautiful. Um, it, it's one of, unfortunately, the, the poorest provinces of Canada. Um, and many people who live there, like work in, in services, they are, um, you know, firefighters, they are nurses, they are um, you know, people who help others. And, and I don't know, you know, it's also called Nova Scotia, sort of like, you know, new. Like, yeah, new. There. yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought, wow, um, the way they're ribbing uh, people from Alberta really feels like a New Mexico, Texas kind of thing. So was that's it, just my American perspective. <laughs> was it your uh, first time there? It was. Yeah. After the mass shooting in Canada, the quick public response following the tragedy from the nation's highest authorities to local community members differed starkly from the response in the U.S. or uh, Texas in the aftermath of the mass shootings we've seen since. Yeah, there was a real sense, Damien, after August 3rd in 2019 that that something was going to change, uh, that this one was the one bad enough uh, to force politicians to take some sort of action to prevent future mass shootings, whether in Texas or at the congressional level. And of course, just like many other mass shootings, um, including at Sandy Hook, we, we saw no change. In fact, in Texas, um, Governor Abbott supported legislation that made it easier to to carry a weapon in public and also arm people in schools under sort of a, a marshals program. And, and I think for a lot of people in El Paso, that, that was disheartening, more so after the horrific tragedy in Ovalde. And I kind of feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves. Everyone in this area, everyone uh, probably in our listenership knows about the El Paso, uh, the Walmart shooting. But what happened in Nova Scotia just months later? So Canada is not used to this sort of, of mass shooting situation, okay? They, they um, have very strict gun laws to begin with um, and have not seen the sort of rash of mass shootings that, in, um, that is sort of really common, commonplace in the yeah. U.S., Right. Um, and, and they look at, at the United States with some disdain, like how could, you know, Americans continue to, to let this happen? So in April of 2020, you know, just when we were experiencing lockdowns here in the El Paso and Las Cruces region around COVID-19, a deranged man on this beautiful, you know, in this beautiful coastal community in Nova Scotia, had been amassing weapons that he had smuggled in from the U.S. through a border crossing between Maine and Canada. And he dressed as a an officer of the Royal 
Canadian Mounted Police, and he began to murder his neighbors. He ultimately killed 22 people, including a nurse who was pregnant uh, with her second baby. And it was a rampage that lasted 13 hours. He went home to home, killing people um, in the dead of night and, uh, and also picked off people on the street. It's still not entirely understood what his motivations were. Obviously, he, you know, was psychologically damaged, but the the shooting was a true horror for the community and for Canada generally. And uh, one of the things you note is that there, unfortunately, are so many echoes of El Paso in that that particular shooting in Canada. Right. I, I mean, the, the circumstances were certainly different from what we saw in El Paso or in a Buffalo or in Uvalde um, or in any of the school shootings that we've seen in the U.S. There, there were different circumstances. That being said, um, what facilitated, you know, the shooting was easy access to firearms in the U.S. And this this man who did not hold a Canadian firearms license managed to cross the border and purchase um, high-powered weapons um, in Maine and, you know, illegally smuggle them over the border. Uh, you know, what was interesting is that in the wake of that shooting, even though the weapons came from the U.S. and there was some criticism from you know, the Conservative Party in Canada, uh, that the legislation would do nothing to stop, you know, what actually happened in this particular shooting. Uh, the government of Justin Trudeau, nevertheless, um, banned 1,500 different, you know, what are known as assault weapons and and their components. And, you know, whether or not it would have prevented this particular mass shooting, it was seen as a symbolic measure in Canada, you know, that Canada doesn't want to ever be in the position that the U.S. finds itself in today. As we've processed through this and, and created the playground that we're now sitting in and as we work towards breaking ground on the new building, I've seen such a change in the residents that I've gotten to know. There's a new sense of hope. There's a sense of pride in their community, because some of them said to me, if somebody asks me where I live, I don't want to say, because people will judge. People will judge, or they'll feel sorry for me. You know, and I don't want either of that. I don't want to be pitied. Uh, I certainly don't want to be, you know, oh dear, dear, or shunned because of it. So, so there was a certain sensitivity around it. And now they can say, yes, I live in port Beck, and we've got this great playground, and we're going to have this hall, and we're doing it all ourselves. And how empowering is that? I've been saying since day one that this is a story about hope and resilience, and it really is, because they, they have had the strength and the resilience and the audacity, if I can borrow a quote from Barack Obama, but the audacity to have hope when it would be so easy just to give up and hide and decide they're not gonna do, they're not going to. So I applaud them all for what they've been able to accomplish so far, and I can't wait to see what else happens. And- you, you kind of touched on this, but I want you to speak a little more to it. Part of the response stems from the fact that this does happen far less frequently in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a strange way to say it, but Canadians had the benefit of true shock and horror that this could happen 
um, in their community, in a small, close-knit community. I mean, we're talking about a town of about 125 people in a region where the largest city is a, is a town of 50,000. And so it really dispelled any notion that culture comes into play or that something like this can't happen in a small community. But, that, you know, there there were varying opinions in, in Canada and in Nova Scotia about whether, you know, tougher gun control is the answer. Um, and yet from afar, from a community like El Paso, you know, that, that had a, a man come from outside with a high-powered weapon and kill so many at once, it it, it, it it was definitely something that we wanted to look at. Like, how did this happen? And what does it feel like to be a community that, that sees some kind of reform after a tragedy like this? And maybe, maybe another way to say that is that the shock and horror might be similar to what we experience, but uh, we, we certainly experience it far more often than they do. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a real sense that it, it it almost doesn't matter what happens in the U.S. There, there's there is no tragedy so great that will force Congress to act. Now, that was the approach that we took when we first started reporting the story. While we were reporting the story, Congress did take its first action in I think decades with some, you know small moves forward on you know gun control with additional background checks for people under 21 and that sort of thing um certainly advocates for gun reform and the families of victims and survivors are pushing for for much more still now you mentioned that within weeks of the uh, Nova Scotia mass shooting Canadian government banned 1,500 different assault weapons and uh, their components. The uh, country also strengthened its already strict red flag laws, um, extending sales restrictions to people who had been convicted of domestic violence, which in America we call the, the boyfriend loophole. What was the national and regional response to that? Um, there has been a, a really uh, sort of feminist focus on how um, the country is reviewing what happened and what needs to be done. And, you know, one marker that we know that that mass shooters have had in common is a history of intimate partner violence. And, you know, in, in Canada, the the shooter who died in the shooting, he was he was killed by by law enforcement um, after, you know, this 13 hour rampage. He had a documented history of violence against his partner, his common law spouse. And there is a sense that many issues were overlooked. Of course, he did not own a firearms license. So he, the weapons that he had amassed were, were, were illegal. But at the same time, there, were, there was a neighbor, a close neighbor who had reported to police on uh, multiple occasions that 
the shooter was showing off these weapons that she knew were against the law and law enforcement um, did nothing. So so that is under review, a, a basically a year-long review in Canada called the Mass Casualty Commission, which is looking at really everything that, that went wrong and um, how both law enforcement and communities can prevent another tragedy like this. Compared with Texas, and uh, we certainly um, mentioned this earlier, gun laws have actually been loosened in Texas since the Walmart shooting, right? Yeah, I mean, Governor Greg Abbott, as well as other legislators, made a lot of promises in the wake of the El Paso Walmart shooting, promises that that did not come to fruition. And, uh, you know, that obviously um, folks in Texas um, feel very strongly about their right to bear arms. At the same time, the victims and the families of, sorry, the families of victims and survivors of these sorts of tragedies, you know, certainly have, have wanted to push for, for more reform. I mean, and, and you know, we the, saw the that, we saw that in Uvalde. That's right. I mean, in, in both El Paso and Uvalde, you had a very young person able to go in and uh, with relative ease, purchase a very high-powered firearm with, you know, massive supply of ammunition, and I think that's uh, what what we hear from from survivors and from the victims' families is that that's something that needs to change. Tell us about the um, the community of Portapique, which strikes me as profoundly different than El Paso in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the one thing that, that they, that they have in common is obviously having experienced a very similar tragedy. And when a community experiences a tragedy like that, this, it's always like having to chart a, a new path forward because while the country may be quote unquote used to this, it's always fresh and shocking to the community where it happens, right? And so what does healing look like? And, you know, this is a seaside, a bayside community, um, very small. The neighbors actually didn't know each other well because the houses are sort of spread far apart. And one thing that happened in the wake of this tragedy was a sense that that really rebuilding um, community, creating community was really important to them. And and I don't know that we've that we can look at it the exact same way in El Paso because we are such a, an enormous community, 850,000 people in in the county, and obviously with our sister city of Juarez across the border and you know our sister communities in of Las Cruces and and southern New Mexico, we're a much bigger community. But we're all affected by that tragedy and so how do we move forward and heal? And it was hard for both communities because Nova Scotia experienced the COVID-19 pandemic the same way that we did. And there was a lot of separation and, and trauma around that. But it was really inspiring to meet people who, against uh, really difficult odds and with very different backgrounds, had decided to come together and say, you know, we, we need to know each other better. Because, you know, this, this podcast is 
called the reporter's notebook and and part of what we do is kind of pull back the curtain on the reporting experience i'd love to hear how you were received you know as uh, a reporter from el paso in kind of rural nova scotia yeah um that's a great question and we put a lot of thought into how we were going to report I was with photographer Omar Ornelas, who um, is Mexican and spent many years in the Tijuana, Mexicali, Palm Springs area of California and has been um, over here on this side of, you know, this part of the border, El Paso and Ciudad Juarez for the past year or so. And, you know, we went, obviously we had to sort of parachute in and that's never a good thing, especially when you're dealing with a community that has experienced, you know, oh, this trauma. Tragedy, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and where it's a very small town. So so we knew that we were going to be watched the whole time and that any, really any wrong move uh, was going to probably shut the community down to us. So we spent a lot of time just meeting people and, and really introducing ourselves and our work and the community that we came from and the tragedy that, that El Paso experienced so that we could build trust because that's, that's really important. And it's, it's not, it's not like you build trust in order to get something. It's really an exchange. You know, we were there to learn and, um, you know, obviously we, we interviewed like leaders in the community ahead of time and, met with folks who were engaging with the community. But um, on a Saturday morning, we went out to a farmer's market in port pic that was actually set up as one of the many community building events that that, that town has now. And, and we just hung out. You know, Omar, uh, the photographer, was showing folks how to make quesadillas. <laughs> Uh, where this uh, <laughs> one of the community members was was grilling up sandwiches. And, um, you know, we, we really just had sort of kind of a cultural exchange and, and had an opportunity to to let people ask us questions, I guess, is the way to say it. Sure. And, and then we were able to, um, you know, to, to spend time with with people who at that point were, were ready to share their story with us. And how familiar were the residents of Portapec with the El Paso Walmart shooting, the tragedy that happened here? You know, they um, were not as familiar with the Walmart shooting as they were with Uvalde. Obviously, when we went, uh, that was super fresh. It was super fresh and it was all over Canadian news. Um, There were reports every day um, on television news about what was unfolding in Uvalde. And um, some, some people did recall the El Paso shooting, but there was an absolute um, general awareness of how frequent these shootings are in the United States. And, um, you know, a real uh, terror or uh, fear that, that Canada could, could go the direction of the United States. So, so regardless of where people stood on Trudeau's government's moves in the wake of the Nova Scotia shooting, there was generalized agreement that that Canada didn't want to go the way of the U.S., which is to do nothing. Right. Um, Robert Curado. What did you see inside, sir? Not inside. I saw the outside when everything started. What did you hear? What did you see? Uh, gunshots. Saw the lady got hit in front of me. 
than the one inside of me. And the individual also shot at me, which he missed and hit the window. So. Did you ever imagine anything like this would ever happen to you? No, never. What else did you see? Did you see people running out, that kind of thing? I even saw the, uh, the guy with the gun. I saw him twice. What did he look like? Was he dressed He's an in... Anglo. About six foot. He had an AK-47. Was he dressed in, like, military All gear? black. All black. He had a mask. You can see his eyes. That's about it. Is that the scariest thing you've ever seen? Yes. Then me with my mom, was, I didn't know what to do. But, uh, the, the story you were able to tell, as usual, was a, a beautiful one, largely about a community struggling to heal. We don't think a lot about how the COVID-19 pandemic intersected with these dual tragedies. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, this community was was also basically in lockdown. So, you know, um, one of the people who who spoke with us, Sherry Turner, talked about, you know, even even a year later, finally being able to to circulate and running into a neighbor and just desperately wanting to go up and, and hug them. But then feeling like, oh, gosh, we can't do that anymore. So, you know, just in the same way that, that El Paso wasn't able to to gather and mourn in the way that, that people in the borderland would, which es- is... Especially together. during those mm-hmm. anniversaries. Oh, yeah. That first anniversary was was so hard. Um, you know, everyone still being in the, in the midst of, of, of COVID fears and, and we still didn't have a vaccine. So, yeah, I think both communities experienced that that kind of the, the trauma of separation at a time when when you really just want to be close to to your community and, and, and those you love. You write about Tom Taggart, who I think is is called a municipal counselor who represented the area uh, at the time of the shooting. Tell us about Tom's story. Yeah. So um, Tom is a really interesting character just a really great guy who was a municipal counselor. I I guess that would sort of be almost like a county commissioner at the time of the shooting. And now he serves as a provincial legislator. So he's a, he's a leader in the community. Very conservative. A a provincial legislator is kind of like a, like a state rep, like a state rep. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, a very conservative guy, um, you know, feels strongly about rural culture. He is a, um, gun owner you know, has seven hunting rifles, really didn't like it when the Canadian government uh, had a gun registry, which 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 it later abandoned and, and has friends in Texas. And so really understands kind of the, the cultural context. And I, I really appreciated him speaking with us and, and him sharing his story because, you know, it was sort of, I don't know, it, it sort of showed how there can be some more nuance. I feel like in the U.S. there is such entrenchment um, around the politics around guns, whereas in Canada there's still a table where people can gather at to discuss issues around gun control and gun ownership. And um, and, and that was sort of, uh, I, I guess, inspiring, you know, and the way that, that he, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, it, 
regardless of what side of the political spectrum people were on, whether they were liberal or conservative or um, owned guns or didn't own guns, to a person, everyone said to us, man, y'all are, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think I can say the word on the radio down there. <laughs> uh, uh, screwed up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, slight, little stronger, little stronger yeah. language, but, um, but to a person, that is what, what people said. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see where Canada goes in, in the next years and where we go as a country, you know, it's an election year in Texas. So, you know, I guess you have probably, uh, woken up this morning. We're recording this on Thursday and saw the Beto video. Yes. Yeah. I saw that. On Instagram last night. Where he was at a town hall somewhere and he was talking about the Uvalde shooting and about gun control and somebody in the in the audience started laughing and he said, uh, this may be funny to you, uh, but it's right. not funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of um, a lot of a lot of passions. And I think that there's in, in the U.S. like maybe a lack of empathy. Do you think that this could change the do you think it it has the potential to change the political narrative in Texas statewide? That's a great question, and I don't think I'm fit to answer it. I honestly don't know. Um, I report from West Texas, from El Paso, um, which, it, yeah, which goes and uh, it, very differently from from many central right. in Texas. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but all along the border, the politics are changing. Um, border counties are increasingly purple. They're not uh, necessarily going to vote um, Democrat. And uh, Texas is changing. So, you know, who votes obviously is going to matter. Um, how many people vote is going to matter. And yeah, I, I think regardless of your position, it's uh, going to be a very exciting dynamic and then, uh, election season. And then you've, yeah, you've also got Roe v. Wade, which is uh, motivating voters probably on both sides. So uh, yeah, I, the, I don't know to what extent I'm going to have the opportunity to travel, um, hopefully to the Rio Grande Valley uh, in early September uh, to follow Beto's campaign a little bit, try to uh, get a, a litmus test on how voters are feeling in in the border counties in South Texas, and and get a handle on you know what issues are most important to them, whether it's some of the the cultural issues or you know the economy, border issues. So yeah, I'm really really looking forward to that. We do this a lot and especially this time of year looking back at the the victim profiles of the el paso uh the walmart shooting what can you tell us about the victims of the porta peck shooting yeah they were they were very representative of their community you know they were um they were nurses they were volunteer firefighters they were teachers um they were people who were beloved in a in a very small community. For example, one of the first people killed was a woman named Lisa McCulley, who was a teacher at the Porta Pick School. And that Porta Pick School was pre-K through ninth grade, 115 people. So you can imagine that every one of those families knew this teacher. 
and she had, you know, outsized influence in the community. So her loss was was huge. And I think that that each of the victims has a story like that. And that community is still trying to figure out how to memorialize, you know, them, but also, you know, focus on on moving forward and healing and creating community. Yeah. And then for any, you know, your New Mexico listeners out there, I, I lived in New Mexico um, for seven years before I moved over to El Paso and, you know, just miss the the wilderness of New Mexico. And um, y'all should all go to Nova Scotia. <laughs> in fact, um, <laughs> one of the sources I talked to was actually um, an Albuquerque transplant. And in fact, two of the victims were Albuquerque transplants. Oh, my um, goodness. From New Mexico. Yeah, people from New Mexico who had a connection to Nova Scotia and had gone and retired there. Um, when I say it's like the New Mexico of Canada, I mean, there really are. Some <laughs> it, it really and, does feel yeah. like home. Yeah, I mean, there's something, you know, it's it's cold and wet. So maybe after being in the that's, hot, dry that's Southwest. <laughs> like New, that's like maybe a better New Mexico. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think after living in the Southwest for so long, you think, uh, where do I want a vacation? Like somewhere where it rains all the time. (laughs) One of the things I found fascinating is that you wrote a person is 18 times more likely to die by firearm in the U.S. than in Canada. And the likelihood of dying from a bullet is even greater in Texas. The rate of firearm-related homicide in Canada was about 0.73 per 100,000 people in 2020, compared to 13.6 people per 100,000 in the U.S., and 14.2 people per 100,000 in Texas the same year. According to Statistics Canada, the Pew Research Center and U.S. Centers for Disease Control. That's not really a question. I just wanted to kind of put that out there as a frame of reference, really. Lauren, uh, what do you want to add that we haven't talked about yet? Oh, I don't know. I think we we really covered it. I just... um you know, really appreciate you having me on the podcast. You know, I love Las Cruces, love Southern New Mexico. I lived here for seven years. So, um, so it's always a pleasure to uh, reconnect with, with your listeners here. Lauren, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Damien. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about well, about how we report stories. You can find all our news stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Lauren for joining us this week. You can read Lauren's reporting in the El Paso Times and in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Thanks to the El Paso Times for the additional audio heard in this episode. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces, 
at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.